Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm so glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Robert George. Robert George is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He also served as chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and as a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And I wanted to speak with Robert today because I think from his experience in those positions and also having defended religious liberty internationally, he could bring a great viewpoint to this discussion. So we just finished celebrating Religious Freedom Week, and it's an initiative of the U.S. Catholic Bishops Conference to encourage us as Catholics to live out our faith in the public sphere and to serve the common good. And it's a celebration for all religious communities, not just Catholics. We take it for granted here in the U.S., but it is an important dimension of our civic life together. And as we'll hear today, important for promoting human dignity from a Christian perspective. I also want to talk with Robbie because I knew that he would be willing to have some discussion about how do we handle, you know, a misrepresentation of what is religious liberty. Because that's something that I struggle with. Like, I firmly believe that we as Catholics have the right to live our faith. And I'm not talking about just inside the parish halls. I mean, live our faith 24-7 and have our perspective and have our values and be able to participate in the public sphere. And at the same time, we still are called to be on the side of the marginalized and oppressed. And right now, at least in our culture, as we have these discussions, it seems like there's this tension between us exercising our religious liberty and then at the same time, people perceiving it as marginalizing those who are oppressed. And that's not what we're supposed to do. How do we work through this? These are the tough questions. These are the things we need to work through. And there are people who do use religious liberty to marginalize people. And that's not where we're coming from. And we have to be able to identify them and push back on them, even if they are using the same mantle that covers us, religious liberty. But when they're doing so from a perspective of intentionally marginalizing unjustly others, I think we have a duty to speak, but it's teasing out. Sometimes these things aren't that clear cut, but nonetheless, I think we're supposed to grapple with it and we're supposed to struggle with it all while adhering to the truth, adhering to Christ, loving the Lord, loving our neighbor, and inviting people to come to know him. And so our witness in these matters, while adhering to the truth, being based in the truth, is also supposed to help us reach out and love to those who are marginalized and oppressed. We have to be able to do both and, not an either or. And how do we do it with fidelity to the Lord? A lot of things to work through. And I hope we can at least add some light to this conversation when we talk with Professor George in just a few moments. As you know, I'm doing this podcast with America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening around the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. It's here that we can talk about systemic racism and critical race theory, and also religious freedom and the dignity of the unborn. And the best way to support this ministry and my podcast is to get a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Professor Robert George is up next.
My guest today is Robert George. He is a legal scholar and a leading conservative intellectual and a Catholic, as well as a banjo aficionado. So glad to have you here today on the show, Robbie. Gloria, it's just a blessing to be with you. I love and admire the work you do, and I'm just glad to have an opportunity to work with you. Oh, my goodness. You know, one of the reasons I was like, I've got to talk to Robbie today, got to talk to him on these issues, is because I know you engage in uh, topics that some people shy away from, people find difficult, but you do it all in seeking the truth. And that you even would listen to people who you disagree with deeply out of respect for trying to understand their perspective and then balancing that or examining what they're saying against what you understand and know. And how should I say, understand all for truth. And I think that kind of love of truth is so needed, especially in today's conversations. And I think having that approach helps us all to remember how to engage and be respectful with people who, through goodwill, are actually searching for truth, even if they deeply disagree. And we need more of that. So I admire you. I admire the way you engage in this work. Well, you're very kind to say that, uh, Gloria. And I hope at least some of that is true. I try. Sometimes fail, but certainly, certainly try. Behind all that and what justifies the effort is my belief, I, I like to think it's my knowledge, that people of goodwill, reasonable people of goodwill, no matter where they find themselves on the political or philosophical or religious spectrum, have important things to learn from each other. And no one is going to learn anything from anybody else if we're always shouting at each other. We need to be listening. And by listening, I don't mean simply politely sitting by and hearing. (laughs) hearing, but not listening. By listening, I mean really listening. That means taking on board what someone else is saying, considering it in the best possible light, thinking about whether it in fact might be true as a corrective to what one might erroneously believe. Even if it's not true, what can I learn from the fact that an intelligent, well-disposed person does in fact believe it? We have nothing to fear, nothing whatsoever to fear from deep, respectful, honest engagement with people, no matter how dramatically they may disagree with us. We have everything to gain from that. But you do make an exception, I think, in terms of demagogues. <laughs> You're like, well, just I, can't, I, you know. Yeah, I, I, uh, I did say reasonable people of goodwill. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. of course, across the political spectrum, we have not only reasonable people of goodwill, thank God we do, mm-hmm. uh, but we also, again, across the political spectrum, have demagogues. People who are not interested in conversation, not interested in learning, not interested in listening, they functionally believe that they're infallible. Mm. They don't entertain the possibility that it might in fact be wrong. So their existential stance is that they have everything to teach and preach and nothing to learn. And you can't have a conversation in those sorts of circumstances. There are certain conditions that need to be in place among interlocutors, discussion partners, if they're to learn from each other. And part of that is a kind of intellectual humility, understanding of one's own fallibility, Mm -hmm. uh, willingness to learn from somebody else. Gloria, I often tell my students, one thing we all know about ourselves, I know this about me, you know this about you, every person on this planet knows it about himself or herself. And that is, we hold some beliefs right up there in our head that are in fact false. No serious person believes that every belief that they hold is true. So I know some are false. 
And the other thing, if we're serious about ourselves, to recognize is that some of those beliefs might not be just beliefs about trivial or superficial or unimportant matters. Some of the beliefs that may be false are about important matters, matters of morality, of justice, of human rights, the human good, the common good. Now, once we take on board the fact that we know we're wrong about some things, we are deeply incentivized to listen to other people, yes. not to try to shut down their speech, to honor free speech, honor the right to criticize, to probe, to poke, to explore. And that's simply because, since I know I'm wrong about some things, I know I'll never be able to swap out my false beliefs for true beliefs if I don't allow anybody to challenge me. Right. Or if I get into a silo where, because all I'm doing is listening to people on one side who are reinforcing my beliefs, well, they're going to reinforce my false beliefs as well as my true beliefs. But look at where we are today, Gloria. Right. Look yeah. at how polarized we are. Look at the silos people are in. Mm -hmm. And I think also with these silos comes fear of the other side. Oh, yes. Uh, fear, and in and, and, and the most unfortunate case, is hatred of the other side. And, demonization. Uh, yes, demonization. And I hate to see it among Catholics, you know, because I'm like, as Catholics, though, we read across, I should hope, across the spectrum, but I hope in there, we're also looking at things through the lens of our faith, reading our catechism, trying to understand what we believe about the human person and how that comes to play on current issues of morality, current issues of how we treat our neighbor. And right now in this moment, current issues of religious liberty. So with that said, what is religious liberty properly understood? What should we think about religious liberty? The first question is, what do we understand by religious liberty? What do we mean? Because after all, Gloria, 19th century popes, including some of the greatest popes of that era, were very skeptical, to say the least, about religious liberty. Uh, they denounced it. Now, why did they do that? And why do we affirm it? Why do we in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, find the great declaration on religious liberty, Dignitatis Humanae, boldly proclaiming the importance of religious liberty. Why does St. Pope John Paul II, in his encyclical letters and in his speeches, constantly stress the importance of religious liberty? How do we make sense of that? Did the church dramatically change its position? The Catholic Church is not usually in the business of dramatically right. changing its position over the course of 100 years or so. Here, I think it's important to understand what religious liberty meant, what those, those words, that phrase meant to popes in the 19th century and to Catholics more generally. Their conception of religious liberty was shaped by the experience of the French Revolution. After all, the church was largely in those days a European church. Yeah. The church leadership was European. We were in a 500-year period of Italian popes, popes from one European country. So, of course, their experience was shaped by that trauma of the French Revolution. And the French Revolutionary concept of religious liberty included such things as the idea that the church is and must be completely subservient to the state. Yeah. The idea that no religion was really true, or all religions are equally true, or all religions are false, or all religions are equally false, or that religious vows taken by men and women who are consecrated don't bind in conscience, or that it's immoral to take religious vows because then you're trying to restrict your own freedom of intellect. You're binding yourself against changes of mind, and that's immoral. All of those ideas were rejected, rightly rejected. We reject them today. The church rejects them. And that's what they thought religious liberty meant. And it did mean that to the French revolutionaries and people who bought into that. 
But what the church came to see, and by 1965, the Second Vatican Council came to embrace, was the idea that religious liberty needn't be all that French revolutionary ideology. Rather, it is the liberty of the person, the individual human being, to consider the deepest, most important existential questions, the questions of meaning and value, the questions of where do we come from, what is our destiny, questions of human nature, the human good, human dignity, human Mm -hmm. destiny, and then to answer for ourselves by our own best lights, being as honest as we can, not only with others, but with ourselves, those questions. And then third, to live with authenticity and integrity in our actions, in line with our best considered judgments on those great questions of meaning and value, those great existential questions, the questions that the great religions propose to answer, including Christianity and Judaism. So when the church has that in mind, the church says, well, yes, of course, faith must be free or it's not faith. A coerced, quote, faith, unquote, is not faith at all. You can coerce the external indicia of faith. You can make somebody go to Mass or forbid somebody from going to Mass. You can make people attend a Passover Seder or forbid people from attending a Passover Seder. And tyrants have done all those things. But all you can coerce are outward acts Mm -hmm. that are meant to show faith. What you cannot reach by coercion are the internal acts of intellect and will that are the very substance of faith, of religious faith whether it's Catholic faith or Jewish faith or Islamic faith, any religious faith. And when the church got that fully into view and had in mind this concept of religious liberty as opposed to the French revolutionary concept, the church said it can only be Christian teaching to embrace this concept of religious liberty, not just for Catholics, of course, but for everybody. As I listened to you with that beautiful explanation of religious liberty, one thing that was striking me in this, again, is the pursuit of truth, the grappling with ideas to try to come to a right judgment on something. And I think that we as Catholics need to remember that, especially with so many arguments out there really just appealing to emotion that have no substance, no deeper substance in that. We need to really be aware of that and really grappling with what's out there. And so if we understand religious liberty that way, what does that say for us? How should we understand the separation of church and state, which is a big, you know, as Americans, I keep hearing that whenever any issues of morality come up and we have something as Catholics to say, people say, ah, separation of church, state, separation of church and state. And I'm like, that actually isn't precisely the right understanding of what we mean by separation of church and state. So could you help us out here? Yes, the words separation of church and state are often invoked in our constitutional jurisprudence, but as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know, those words do not appear in the Constitution of the United States. And then when the Bill of Rights was added shortly after ratification of the original Constitution, the very first words of the very first amendment pertain to religion and religious liberty. Those words are, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Sometimes, uh, Gloria, those are referred to as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, not simply our freedom of worship now, not just what we do in private in the temple or mosque or church or synagogue or around the dinner table before meal or on, on our knees at bedtime, not just the private stuff. It protects the free exercise of religion. That is the right of all of us to go out into the public square 
and vie on terms of equality and fairness with our fellow citizens for the allegiance of our fellow citizens on fundamental issues of the common good, the human good, human rights, justice, Mm -hmm. the big important questions. Our model here and the best spokesman for this correct understanding of our Constitution was not a Catholic at all. He was a Baptist and his name was Martin Luther King. Mm. And if you read Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, you will see just how fallacious is the idea that the separation of church and state, the so-called separation of church and state, requires that the Constitution in any way requires that religious people keep their moral views private and not attempt to uh, influence legislation or public policy based on their uh, moral understandings of the human good, human rights, justice. Dr. King said that it was necessary for us to go into the public square informed by faith and reason. It's very interesting. If you look at Dr. King as a Baptist, he's very Bible-oriented, constantly quoting the Bible and not afraid about quoting the Bible. But he also understood something that's very familiar to us uh, Catholics, something he embraced too, called natural law. The idea that we can sometimes know very important moral truths, not simply as matters of divine revelation in scripture, but as matters of natural reason, what we can know by using our practical intellects, even apart from a revelation. So Dr. King's message, which is the correct message, one that we Catholics should embrace, one entirely in line with the Constitution, is that we should rely on faith and reason, go into the public square, make our arguments, try to influence legislation to bring it into greater conformity with the requirements of human rights, justice, the common good. Well, I'm so glad you brought up Martin Luther King, because I think a lot of times people forget that the civil rights movement did have a Christian ethos, right? As we talk about rights going forward. And I think people forget that. And too often, especially when we're talking about religious liberty now, vis-a-vis rights for people with same-sex attraction or rights for people who don't view themselves in accord with their physical biology, people will throw out that these religious are having a, a perspective informed by religion is by necessity, by just in its essence, is anti-gay, is homophobic. And so, you know, we come right to the question of how people view our perspective as Catholics when we're talking about teachers that are hired by Catholic institutions, when we talk about foster parents or adoptive parents that come to Catholic institutions, that people say that living or having policies that reflect our beliefs or even engaging in litigation to defend our beliefs is in its essence anti-gay, that it's hateful. And I think they forget about Martin Luther King and instead of looking more toward people like the Klan and Bob Jones University who did abuse religious arguments to put forward things that were unjustly discriminatory. How could we help people in this regard. Is it anti-gay for us to want to hold on to or expect people engaging with us or working in Catholic institutions to follow our teachings in these areas? We live at a time and in a culture where there is a profound disagreement, a profound difference of opinion among our citizens about fundamental questions of sexual morality, the meaning of marriage, the meaning of what it means to be a man or woman, what it means to be a human person. The premises of these debates, Gloria, run very, very deep into deep moral and metaphysical matters. On one side are people who implicitly, if not self-consciously, embrace the idea that what a person is, what a human person is, is a psychological reality that inhabits a material body 
This is the view that the real me is not this material body that you see or hear. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a psyche hidden somewhere that you can't see, which is expressed through the bodily movements or through the voice or what have you. But it's not really me. I'm not my body. Mm-hmm. I'm a non-bodily person who inhabits a, a non-personal body, and the body is merely a material instrument of the person. And if that's your view, that's likely to generate, when it comes to ethical questions, the belief that abortion, for example, or perhaps even infanticide, as Peter Singer and Michael Tooley and others have argued, is perfectly morally permissible because you don't have a person until you have self-awareness, rationality, mm-hmm. self-consciousness, the ability to distinguish oneself from one's own mother, for example. One has the, uh, the ability to form desires of one's own, make plans. So prior to birth, of course, you have a human being. That's a biological fact, but you don't yet have a person. This view, of course, is utterly rejected by the Catholic Church, rejected by the broader Christian tradition, rejected by the Jewish tradition. It is radically unbiblical. But it is a view that has been embraced by people outside the biblical tradition, far from all, of course. But it's a view. It's a serious view. Descartes held it, for example. There's a version of it that Plato held, although he did not draw the moral conclusions, nor did Descartes from the underlying anthropology that many people today draw. But the Catholic and broader Christian and biblical view does understand the body as part of the personal reality of the human being and not a separate substance. We don't understand ourselves as psyches inhabiting bodies or as non-bodily persons uh, inhabiting and using non-personal bodies. So you can see how deep this debate is. The reason I go into all this metaphysical stuff is you can see that this is a really deep question. And yet there are people today who criticize and condemn the church or criticize and condemn the role that Catholics seek to play in the public square on these issues, or even criticize and condemn the way Catholics run their own institutions, their schools, their adoption agencies, their social service organizations, because they think there's no debate here. Right. They think it's self-evident that their view is true, and anybody who disagrees with me is a bigot. Right. Now, that is not making an argument. That's an attempt to stigmatize and defame people and institutions like the Catholic Church in order to wrestle them to the ground and force them to conform with somebody else's fundamental quasi-religious or religious view. And we rightly invoking the Constitution say, no way, folks, no way. We have every bit as much of a right to defend our own conception of the human person and our own understanding of the requirements of morality and justice and human rights coming out of that conception of the person as you do. We don't ask for anything more than to be able to compete fairly in the domain of public policy, trying to persuade our fellow citizens as to what justice and the common good require in the forms of Republican democracy. And I'm glad to see that increasingly the Supreme Court is seeing it the same way. If you look at the recent decisions of the Supreme Court, including the Fulton case now uh, involving Catholic foster service uh, care in Philadelphia, you'll see that the Supreme Court is moving steadily but surely in the direction of saying, no, we're not going to let one side here shut down the debate. What the Constitution requires is that both sides have fair and equal treatment. They are able to run their institutions as they see fit. And when it comes to public policy, they're going to have to compete in the domain of democracy. You can't just shut down the other side's speech or the other side's political participation or anything like that. I think people don't think that deeply about the issue. I think people 
simply see it as a surface issue of why can't we be just nice and give people what they want? And when you help people understand there's some fundamental truths in our understanding about who the human person is that come into play here. So I think the question for a lot of people is, then how do we live together in this society with people being respectful of our understanding of the human person and how we want to order ourselves and our institutions and our lives, while at the same time living with people who think completely differently, right? And so this is when we get into the discussions of I don't mind calling somebody another, whatever name they want, but then people get into the idea of, well, is this person a he or a she? Or how do I, you know what I mean? So and if you opt not to because of your understanding of the human person and the body, people will see you as being purposely hateful, (laughs) obstinate, disrespectful. But we have to try to, I think, engage. And why do people believe things what they believe. But I don't ever think it gets to that level of deep thought the way you're talking about, at least not in the public discussions. And so hopefully people listening to us talk here on this podcast will come away thinking more deeply on the issue and recognizing that it is not necessarily hate that motivates, but rather a deep understanding of who the human person is. That's exactly right. Love sometimes requires that we speak very bluntly, that we speak controversially that we bear bold witness, that we take risks and make sacrifices, that we allow ourselves to be called names, abused, excluded from educational profession or professional uh, opportunities. And it is to speak the truth, Gloria. It's yeah. to speak the truth as God gives us to see the truth. I, I love to quote Lincoln. We need to proceed on these tough issues where the Catholic position is under assault, where people dismiss it as bigotry, where they, where they make false claims against us. We need to proceed, as Lincoln said, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Confident that what really matters is that we are seeking the truth and speaking the truth as best we understand the truth. Now, as far as these efforts to force people to say things they don't believe, this is a very serious business. I often note that ordinary authoritarians are content to prohibit people from saying things they believe to be true. But totalitarians, as opposed to mere authoritarians. Totalitarians are not satisfied simply to prohibit people from saying what they believe to be true. They think they have to force people to say things that people believe to be false. Mm. And when that starts to happen and when we yield to it, no matter out of fear, out of politesse, no matter what the motive is, when we become willing to say things, maybe just to get along, to say things that we know are not true, We have not only harmed our own character, we have deeply damaged the common good, which requires a climate of freedom, honesty, and authenticity in order for good decisions to be made. So you ask, how do we live together? I have the answer. Through the offices, through the mechanisms, through the institutions of Republican democracy, Mm -hmm. we decide that we're not going to kill each other even over very fundamental questions of justice and morality. We're not going to kill each other. That's not how we're going to decide these things. We're not going to go to war. We're going to do it at the ballot box. And we may lose today, but in a democratic republic, there are no permanent losses and there are no permanent victories because we can always come back, organize, reorganize, and make the plea to our fellow citizens again and say, folks, we got it wrong last time. You know, let's rethink this thing. We need to get back on track. Gloria, what we must not permit to happen is letting anybody, right, left, Republican, Democrat, I don't care who it is, 
once they win in the democratic forum and get control of these institutions, manipulate them in order to prevent protest, challenge, reconsideration, in order to insulate themselves from critique. We'll be back in a minute. So, Robbie, hearing this, I know there have to be some listeners that say the church is supposed to stand with the marginalized, with the oppressed. And certainly our brothers and sisters who identify as LGBTQ are in that group. So how can we have these two positions of standing with the oppressed and marginalized as well as holding on to our understanding of the human person? Don't they seem to be in a conflict? These two positions seem to be in conflict. How do we do this? Well, the truth is, and we have to face this truth straight up, is that the uh, movement that you've identified and the organizations of that movement, the Human Rights Campaign, for example, the organization called GLAD, the Lambda Legal Defense Fund, have a debate with the Catholic Church and the evangelical community and the Orthodox Jewish community and the Muslim community. They've got a viewpoint and we've got a viewpoint, and those viewpoints are in conflict. We disagree Mm -hmm. about fundamental questions of sexual morality, about the meaning and nature of marriage, about sexuality and sexuality in the proper understanding of the human person. We have these deep disagreements, and Gloria, it will do no one any good. We are not helping anybody if we deny those disagreements or pretend they don't exist or pretend there's no conflict here. The movement that you identify very much wants to shape public policy in line with its understanding of sexuality, of marriage, of sexual morality. I understand that. I get that. That's perfectly okay. That's their right in a Republican democracy. I would defend to the death their right fully to participate. Mm -hmm. But they've got to understand that it works the other way as well. It's a two-way street. Those of us who have a different view of marriage, of sexual morality, of sexuality in the human person, have an equal right to participate on fair terms in the public square in an effort to persuade our fellow citizens and to influence public policy. Yes, I think it's very important for us to be kind, especially to people who are struggling, for example, struggling with body dysphorias. And there are different kinds, many different kinds, actually, of body dysphorias. We need to be kind. We need to be truly Christian. We need to speak the truth in love, but we need to speak the truth. Mm. And we're not loving anybody if we don't tell them the truth, if we don't speak the truth. We believe a great deal for the common good, for human rights, for children depends on how we shape our public policy and our law in relation to questions of marriage, family, sexuality, sexual morality. And we have an obligation. It's tough, Gloria. It's yeah. people, people People on our side don't want to do this. They don't want to stand up in the face of that cultural power. They don't want to be named and, and shamed. They don't want to be called bigots. No, they'd much rather go along. They'd much rather fight on stuff that's easy to fight on where you don't get criticized. You can stand up for very worthy causes that nobody's going to criticize you for, you know, the heart association. Yeah. But when it comes to standing yeah. up for the child in the womb, when it comes to standing up for marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife or sexual morality, you're going to get heat from really, really powerful people. You might lose job opportunities. You might lose educational opportunities. You will certainly lose friends. It may damage valued familial relationships. It is tough to do, but it comes with the territory. And I think I will say, at least I had some very negative experiences once I started to stand up for the dignity of the human person in light of racism. And maybe it was because of the places that I was that I had a profound impact on my life. But I was like, but I also understood that that's what it means to 
be a believer, to be a Christian. You know, we all like to be martyrs till we might have to be one. <laughs> we all love them till we might have to be one. But I think in this area of sexual morality, what makes it so difficult is that the idea of loving you know, how do you love someone that loves, as they say, differently? And so this is where people, I think, have a difficulty. But I'm, I always remind people, it's just like being in a family. We don't always get along or always agree with everybody in our family, but we love them on a fundamental level, even if we think they're wrong. And so I'm hoping people take more of that view in looking at these, looking at these issues and trying to talk through them. And just because we've had some bad actors like Bob Jones University and the KKK, we have to remember people like Martin Luther King, you know, that did have an understanding of the human person based on their faith and in fighting for the dignity of the human person and for to relieve ourselves of these unjust laws, unjust practices against people. And so we have to not just, I think, throw out those of us who have a belief in God as being fundamentally married to oppression or hate, because that's just not true historically when you look at these arguments. Now, I want to point to something that I think maybe people don't recognize or maybe are unaware of, is that you're friends with Professor Cornell West And he has a certain understanding about LGBTQ rights and things like that. And you do as well. But yet you guys are really good friends. And so how does that come to be? I think that's like such a good example for us, actually, in trying to figure out how do we get along in these situations? Yeah, I love Cornell and uh, his friendship. And it's really deeper than a friendship. It's a true brotherhood. It means the world to me. It's one of the greatest blessings in my life. Before I talk a bit about that, though, which I'll be very happy to do, I I want to go back, Glory, to what you mentioned earlier and to what you were subjected to, which was very, very wrong. And I was proud to stand up for you at that time. You did. Thank you. And I I did because it was right. Not just because I like you. I do like you. I like you a lot. You're a dear friend. Mm -hmm. But because it was the right thing to do. So when people come under unfair attack, and it doesn't matter whether it comes from uh, the New York Times and Google and the most powerful people, or whether it just comes from misguided people who don't have a lot of power, but enough to make your life miserable, uh, (laughs) we've got to stand up for people whose lives are being made miserable. And and I'm I'm glad to see how you came out of this flags flying and flourishing and and doing a show like this, which is 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 wonderful. God is good. Exactly. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So gosh, Cornell and I began teaching together at Princeton in 2005. So we're going back now a decade and more than a decade and a half. And we've developed a powerful friendship across the lines of ideological division. I'm a kind of old-fashioned Catholic conservative. He's the honorary chairman of Democratic Socialists of America. So we disagree on a whole lot Mm -hmm. of issues, including some of those issues of sexuality and morality that you were talking about. But we also share some very, very fundamental things. And it's that deep sharing that is at the foundation of our friendship. And it's what our relationship is really integrated around, the dignity of the human person, the belief that every single human being, no matter how weak or vulnerable, poor, sinful, debased, uh, self-debased, every Mm. single member of the human family is a precious son or daughter of God, made in the very image and likeness of the divine creator and ruler of the universe a bearer of profound, inherent, and equal dignity. Now, that's something to share. If you're serious about that, that can be the foundation of a real bond. We also deeply believe in truth-seeking and truth-speaking. Both of us are very outspoken. Sometimes we don't see the truth the same way, but we understand our obligation to speak the truth, whether Mm -hmm. it pleases people or displeases people. You know, he gets a lot of flack. I get a lot of flack. 
you know, one of my, uh, somebody who was unhappy with what I was saying ended up spending three and a half years in a federal prison for threatening my life. Wow. Cornell has had similar experiences with death threats and things like that. So we have that bond as well. Uh, we believe in truth seeking. We believe in truth speaking. And we believe deeply and have defended, Gloria, the conditions mm -hmm. of truth seeking, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, freedom of discussion. There is no fiercer advocate of the freedom of other people, including conservatives and people who disagree with him. There's no fiercer defender of freedom of speech than Cornell West. Mm -hmm. He is an absolutist when it comes to truth-seeking speech, to, to, to true dialogue. And he is exemplary in his willingness to engage anybody, mm -hmm. uh, no matter how deeply they disagree, and to actually listen and to try to learn. He and I have this in common. We both want to learn from people we disagree with. We don't want to just preach at them. We want to hear what they have to say. We want to hear what the argument is. Mm -hmm. He recognizes, as I try to recognize, our infallibility. We could be wrong, but we're never going to find out whether we're wrong if we shut down anybody who challenges us or, or, right. or participate in robbing that person of his or her free speech. We need to be willing to let them speak and not only let them speak, to actually take their speech seriously if we're to get anywhere. So in what began as a great books teaching project, a wonderful seminar we, we began teaching about a decade and a half ago, we now not only teach together, we travel the country lecturing together. We write together. I commend to your listeners our 2017 statement, Truth Seeking Democracy mm -hmm. and Freedom of Thought and Expression. It's available online. It's short, but I think your listeners might find it interesting. Truth Seeking well, Democracy it. and Freedom of Thought and Expression. If you could mm -hmm. link to it, I appreciate it. Right. So we, we teach together. We lecture together. We write together. We pray together. Cornell's a devout Christian. He identifies himself as being on the left wing of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, <laughs> I'm an old-fashioned Catholic. But mm -hmm. there's no reason that these two brothers can't pray together. And we pray together all the time. We pray for each other. We're involved in each other's families. Yeah. Uh, Cornell's daughter, Zaytun, the wonderful and brilliant Zaytun, was admitted to both Harvard and Princeton. And she had the choice of going up to Harvard where she could be there with her father or going to Princeton where she could study with her uncle Robbie. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Gloria, she made exactly the right choice. <laughs> Somehow that's <laughs> so, Princeton then. <laughs> <laughs> we've got Zaytun here with us at, uh, right. at Princeton. And not only not only do we pray together, we <laughs> sing together. And if you, uh, if you, yes. if you go online, you can even find uh, the, the, the two of us singing together. That actually began once when we just spontaneously burst Started into singing. a hymn in the middle of one of our seminars and our students were completely startled and then, and then I think rather charmed by the experience. Mm -hmm. But this is a very good example. I mean, what I have with Cornell is very, very special, but there's no reason that it can be, it should be unique. It shouldn't be unique. Right. Go find a friend who sees things different, different religion, uh, different political perspective, different point of view. Now, it's also important to have friends you agree with on things, but right. it's also important to have friends that you disagree with so long as they're reasonable people of goodwill. And you mustn't make the mistake of supposing, well, if he disagrees with me, he's not a good person of goodwill. He's not a reasonable person. That right. means you're a dogmatist. You're an ideologue, if that's what you think. That takes a lot of discipline. <laughs> that also takes a lot of study, I think, of listening to other sides so that you uh, don't turn their arguments into straw men. And I've seen that yeah. done a lot. A lot of what people understand about what we believe about the human person has been misrepresented. And I think that's why it's easier to say that we are haters or we're this or we're that. And we also do have, I, 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 on our side, plenty of hypocrites. And there are people who are motivated by not noble, they don't have noble reasons for certain things, but they don't 
define all of us. They don't represent what we, and, and, and again, that's why I'm like, kick those people to the side and we should be critiquing them, right? When they speak or uh, seem to speak from our, our side, but are motivated not by the things that we're motivated by. We need to, like you say, call them out and we need to do that. You know, we're getting close to the end of the podcast and I want to, you know, maybe ask you one last question. Sure. What advice do you give to Catholics who feel like the church is being divided by politics? That politics have come into our faith and, and muddled it, really? Well, there's only one answer to any question of division in the church, and that's faithfulness to Jesus. Yes. And we as Catholics have a complex understanding of what that means. We, we know we can't simply look up Jesus's words in the Bible and live by them. That's part of what we need to do. We certainly need to read the Bible. Our Protestant friends give us good advice when they say, you know, you Catholics should read the Bible more. We really should. Yeah. But we Catholics understand that there is tradition as well as scripture, and there is the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, which guides us, including in uh, our ability properly to understand the teachings of the Bible. So we need to not only read the Bible, we need to acquaint ourselves fully with the teachings of the church and the reasons for the church's teachings. If you have not read the documents of the Second Vatican Council, you do not need to be a PhD. You do not need to be a scholar. You do not have to even have a college education. Just an ordinary reader can read Dignitatis Humanae. It's short, the Declaration on Religious Liberty, or the wonderful teaching in Nostra Aetate, our church's teaching on the various religions of the world. If you haven't read those documents, you should. When it comes to bioethics, to sexuality, Mm -hmm. uh, to marriage, to our responsibilities, to our common home, as Pope Francis calls it, the physical environment, on questions of race and justice. The church has teachings on these things. Read the teachings. They make a beautiful whole. They really are a seamless garment. But as ah, Cardinal yes. Bernardine said, the famous articulator of the seamless garment idea, as he himself said, it's very important that we not use the seamless garment idea or that metaphor to excuse ourselves from fighting on tough issues in the culture where we get a lot of flack, like defending the sanctity of human life, the dignity of the child in the womb, yeah. the obligation to protect life in the womb. That was Cardinal Bernardine who made that point, not just me. I'm just quoting, uh, citing, <laughs> citing the man. Right. But right. It, it works both ways. That, it also means that we need to be on the right side of the racial justice questions. It means we need to be on the right side of the environmental questions. And a lot of Catholics disregard or dismiss Bernardin as unorthodox. And no, we should, that, that's exactly we should right. push back on that. And I think what he says, you know, I think people want to tear up the seamless garment and only deal with one part of it. But then I think they miss it all. And uh, yeah. what I like about when you talk about the defense of human life, the defense of life in the womb, you remind people that it is. That's our obligation as believers if we believe what we believe. But you don't then turn around and say we have no other obligations. And I think that is where some people also have difficulty. Some only want to focus on life in the womb and think they're good and don't have to do anything else. Some people want to only focus on, on issues of sexuality and not want to do anything. You know what I mean? It's like they just want to pick one thing. And if they're like, oh, I'm good if I just do all this, not recognizing it's the whole thing. It's the whole human person and all the dimensions in which we interact with one another, in which we exist in this, in how we live, that all these things come into play for those of us who, who are Catholic, who are believers, who profess what we profess every time we go to Mass. You know, yeah. so 
And, and that I think is a challenge for all of us. And that's why we have these kinds of conversations. So we may think more deeply and so that it will affect our interior understanding, which then hopefully will be expressed in our exterior actions. Completely right, Gloria. <laughs> now, so. all of us are finite. All of us have limited time and, and resources. So there's nothing wrong with us, in a certain sense, specializing or focusing in this area or that area or a small number of areas. Right. But we shouldn't undermine the work. In fact, we should support the work that is on the right side, as we Catholics understand it, of issues across the mm-hmm. uh, spectrum. Well, you don't you don't diminish the other things. Exactly. And that's what I'm hoping people hear this. Just you don't have to diminish what other people are doing. And I do see that, unfortunately, quite a bit. And I'm like, where is this coming from? And I think this is when we start to look at what we do, not from the lens of the faith, but from the lens of whatever political party we hope will stay in power. It's, isn't that amazing? And then all these other issues become their enemy. And I'm like, no, y'all, we have to look at this through the lens of the faith. And we should, we should understand the defense of the dignity of the human person. And well, we need a lot of defenders because there are a lot of assaults against it. And why would I want to demean what somebody else or diminish what someone else is doing? Something I find so remarkable, Gloria, is if we look, just just look at that small class of our fellow human beings known as our politicians. <laughs> look at gosh. them, okay? <laughs> now, uh, what enables me to predict how a senator will vote on a whole range of important morally charged issues? I can predict by whether I see a D or an R after his name. I can't predict based on whether I know that person is a Catholic or a Christian. Mm. Mm. or a believer. Now, that's okay in some issues where it's just a matter of prudential judgments and Democrats have certain prudential judgments that are different from the prudential judgments that the Republicans make. But on basic moral questions, because it's a basic justice, human rights, human dignity, isn't it sad that we can guess how a person's going to vote by whether they're Republican or Democrat, not by whether they're a Catholic or a Christian or a believer or someone who understands the basic moral vision of our biblical tradition, which we Christians share with our Jewish brothers and sisters, or the Abrahamic tradition that we share with our Muslim friends. You would think that in any kind of a sane world, the fact that a person held a certain fundamental belief rooted in the understanding of human beings made in the image and likeness of God would be a pretty good indicator that that person was going to defend the sanctity of human life, the the dignity of the person against racial discrimination or subordination, you know, a whole range of issues where it seems to be a pretty straight inference from the basic principle of human dignity to what the right policy is. But that's not the way it works for us today, I'm afraid. And that's why we have to continue having the kind of conversations we're having. That's why we have to continue to be active in the public square. That's why we actually have to continue praying and fasting for our secular leaders. Well, our religious ones too, frankly, as no, well, true. right? So that's yeah. why we that's why we do what we do. And also, I, I just want to also say this, and also to remember that the victory has been won. And hopefully that will encourage us to continue, even in what we think are the face of overwhelming odds at loss or whatever that we continue because it's true and it's right. And it's actually a real expression of authentic love. At least I think so. And so I'm hoping that that's what our listeners will hear. I'm hoping that they'll engage deeply 
with what they've heard today on this podcast and really think about it. And again, not be afraid to examine the issues from the lens of Catholicism and maybe reading some of those documents, which we're going to put in the links to this podcast. And so I'm really hoping that what happens is we come to a greater understanding of what it means to live and love in authentic ways with our neighbors. And in particular, that we can do so as Catholics. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Robbie. So glad you were able to join us today on the Gloria Purvis podcast. It's a great blessing. Thank you, Gloria. If you've been enjoying the podcast, or maybe you're learning something new or being challenged to think differently about the issues we're talking about, then others will too. So share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it in the parish. I'd really appreciate it. And if you want to catch more episodes of the Gloria Purvis podcast, be sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. See you next time.